1: They were a little bit stunned after the election. They did not expect Trump to win, they did not expect to be blamed for what happened.
0: And they cannot expect us to believe they're just a fun platform to put cat videos on. Have you met Mr. Trump? Many times. You have? We did all the search, all the data, all the analytics, all the targeting.
1: Hello, welcome to Trumpcast, I'm Jason DeLeon, producer of the show, still not your host for the day, Virginia Heffernan has that honor, but I'm here to get things kicked off. And I'd like to kick things off by telling you about how Facebook got kicked out. That's what the British authorities did this week when Facebook sent auditors to the offices of Cambridge Analytica, the conservative research firm that leveraged the ill-gotten data of over 50 million Facebook users for nefarious political purposes. Cambridge Analytica, as you may or may not remember, began contracting with the Trump campaign back in June of 2016. Why did Facebook get kicked out? Elizabeth Denham, the UK's information commissioner, had this to say on Tuesday. Quote, By Facebook going into Cambridge Analytica's offices at this point, we were concerned about the integrity of our own search. We are also looking at Facebook at this time, so our advice to Facebook was to draw away. To set some context here, a request was made in August of 2016 by Facebook to Cambridge Analytica to have the data they received from a university psychology professor deleted. They have since only recently learned, that's two years later and after people began asking questions, that it had not been destroyed. The British Data Protection Authority is said to be investigating whether Facebook quote secured and safeguarded the data of 50 million users and quote acted robustly when it found out about the leak. Since the news of Cambridge Analytica broke earlier this weekend, story upon story regarding the firm have piled up. From the whistleblower Christopher Wiley, who informed multiple reports over the weekend on how Cambridge Analytica misused Facebook data during the 2016 campaign, to the expose produced by Channel 4 about the firm's, I'm doing big air quotes here, Practices not only in America, but abroad, whatever the political message subtlety yeah, is key It has to happen Without anyone thinking
0: that's propaganda Because the moment you think that's propaganda the next question is who's put that out. Yes So we have to be very subtle
1: That's Mark Turnbull, Cambridge Analytica's managing director of its political division. He was caught on camera during a series of undercover meetings with whom he believed to be a prospective client. Here, in case you can't hear him, he's telling the client that it's important to have their propaganda not look like propaganda, which sounds a lot like the message from the now-suspended CEO of Cambridge Analytica, Alexander Nix, when he talked about digging up dirt and framing political opponents.
0: I mean, it sounds dreadful thing to say that these are things that don't necessarily need to be true as long as they're believed.
1: These things don't necessarily need to be true as long as they're believed.
2: I mean, first of all, I'm so excited for Stephen Merchant to play Alexander Nix in the movie, in the Aaron Sorkin movie about this, because they have this uncanny resemblance. <laughs> it's a
0: great idea. But, um,
1: this is where we'll pick things up with Virginia Heffernan and our guest today, Andrew Morantz of The New Yorker. They're going to chat later in the show about Andrew's fantastic piece on Reddit and how they're doing things different than both Facebook and Twitter. But we're going to start with Cambridge Analytica and whether the ill-gotten data of those Facebook users made them masters of the dark arts of persuasion or... Or if there's just a little bit more nuance than that to the whole situation.
2: Look, I mean, this one of the main questions with Cambridge Analytica from the from the beginning that they sort of came to public consciousness as as this sort of tool of Robert Mercer and Steve Bannon and all these shadowy money figures behind the Trump campaign is like, are they snake oil salesmen or are they, you know, masters of the dark arts of persuasion? Mm We still don't really know. I mean, as that BBC video points out a few times, you know, this could just be their wildly inflated sales pitch. Yeah. But the fact that this is their pitch is really meaningful. Like, Mm -hmm. so what they're promising, and again, we don't know exactly how much this is true, but what they're promising is both totally in line with what political persuasion has always been. Yeah. And a complete departure from it. And it's like both at the same time. So it's always been the case that campaigns try to get as much information on voters as they can. Yep. Uh, the Obama campaign was famous for doing this. Mm-hmm. And they try to micro target to your deepest fears, anxieties, desires, hopes and dreams and and advertise to them. What A few things are crazy about this. One is just the scale and hyper specificity of the way you can do it with Facebook. Yeah. It's just such a massive data set. The fact that people didn't Consent or didn't meaningfully consent to have their data used in this way.
0: This is the, these are the people who signed up with this third part. You know, yeah, so called third-party app. Yeah. called this is your digital life. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. And all, all one word. So they they yeah. you know
0: what did I I didn't look so far into what do you actually enter into this is your digital life. I think I it mean, was a
2: quiz. It was like a personality okay. quiz, mm-hmm. uh, the ocean quiz, I think it was called. But it's you know like one of those Myers Briggs kind of things. But people. Facebook was largely—I mean, uh, my friend Kevin Roos had a great column about this in the Times—that that this was always kind of openly Facebook's model, right? We're going to have these third-party APIs come in; they're going to build tools on top of our platform, mm-hmm. and it's going to be a win-win because it makes it makes Facebook more fun. There's all these like games and things you can do on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And so users want to stay on Facebook and it's a win for these apps because they can make a little money. Mm-hmm. But, of course, like when you g- sign the terms and conditions without reading them, as you do with all these services and mm-hmm. Apple and Facebook and whatever. You're... I send
0: mine out to a lawyer with yeah. screenshots. You, don't... <laughs>
2: yeah. you know, the, you know, the South Park with the Apple terms and conditions. That no. I'll tell you about later. It's like okay. you're signing away your rights to become part of a human centipede. And you like... <laughs> oh don't think they're, like, they're like, you didn't read the terms. and you conditions. Read exactly. So. Um, like Facebook. Facebook is not all that careful with your data. And when you sign up for Facebook, you are signing away essentially your rights to privacy. Now, these things have changed over time and become a little bit more favorable to the user. And there are technically ways that you could go into the guts of Facebook and change the default privacy settings to things that protect you more so that in theory something like this couldn't happen. Mm -hmm. But we know in practice nobody actually does that or Mm -hmm. very few people do. And so what happens is if I, I... don't tend to do this stuff, but if I signed up for one of these fun quiz things, what would happen in 2014 when this when this was going on is that then it would, it would crawl through all of my Facebook friends and take their data too. Mm. So this would just turn into a, a chain.
0: Oh, this is how we get to the 50 million. Yes. Okay.
2: There was a researcher who said, uh, submitted an academic research proposal mm-hmm. for which he needed data. And he didn't say, I'm going to also give this data to this nefarious private company, Cambridge Analytica, Got who just it. said, I want to do research. Right. He handed the data over, and they used not only the 200-something thousand people's data who did sign up for this app, but also all their friends and their friends' friends and their friends' friends' friends. So th- what this whistleblower said is within a month, they had 50 million. He he was shocked at how easy it was to get all this data. And then it's not only the fact they can get the data, it's how effective the micro-targeting can be, right? So, yeah. again, it's like It's not all that out of line with what persuasion tools and tactics have always been. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any reason to think this part of it is illegal. It's just the theory is if we know that you are a neurotic controlled person or if we know that you're an open, spontaneous person, we can then target, you know, let's say we have a a gun ad. Mm -hmm. We can give you the fear one or the hope and dream one or the, you know, do you want to protect your children one? We can like really slice it up. That's sort of the holy grail for all kinds of advertisers, and that's what Facebook has been offering them for a long time.
0: Well, you've hit at the two things that I've heard as um, defenses, or or those, those of us who would kind of shrug at this news, or even news of the Internet Research Agency, sometimes say two things. They say, these people aren't competent, and they say... Um, this is just the same thing they do for Toys R Us and Twizzlers. So, I mean, I've heard this said of the Kremlin, and mm. I've heard this said <laughs> of of Cambridge Analytica, certainly, mm-hmm. that they're snake oil salesmen and mm-hmm. they can't really get much done. Mm-hmm. And then also, any marketer in the world wa- uses these strategies, J. Crew, whoever, to serve you relevant advertising. I mean, and also, people Express more consumer satisfaction when they're shown things that interest them. So, you know, if they're inclined to. To fear and vigilance, and then they're shown ads that kindle that fear and vigilance or that reflex. They are they've had a good experience or they feel they've had a good experience.
2: Yeah, I, I guess what I would say is even if this is broadly speaking the same tools that Toys R Us uses or used, I'm mean, Toys R Us is, is no more, I guess. But yeah. if if you know if uh, if these are the tools that other marketers are using, to me that doesn't really make it less scary, right? Yeah, and also you know, if people report more consumer satisfaction, like people aren't always the best judge. I mean, right before we got on air, I was telling you my theory about how I think I'm smarter than various algorithms. I'm yeah. Statistically speaking, I'm probably wrong, right? People like to think that they're way more independent minded than they are. And that's not like no shade to human beings. It's just like when these tools are really powerful, it's just kind of folly to think that like we're not prey to advertising. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. If we weren't, then they wouldn't be spending all this money on it. Like it, yeah. it it does work. It doesn't work 100% of the time, but obviously it's it's not a nice feeling to feel that you can be manipulated into fear because you see an ad that's designed to drive you into a state of fear.
0: Well, it's more than not a nice feeling. I mean, we I was at Putin and did a Trump cast from there over the over the weekend or on, on Friday and Gary Kasparov was there, the great chess master and Russian dissident. And I always look at him and think I mean, this is the first time I'd seen him in person, but when I think about him, I remember that when he first played and lost to Deep Blue, played chess and lost to Deep Blue, he said, I've lost the will to play. And that is sometimes what the internet and especially what data mining can do to to do, do to me anyway, this mm-hmm. consumer, um this voter, you know, I, if Gary Kasparov can give up when faced with deep blue, you know, he then came back and beat it and then gave up entirely playing right. playing computers. You know, then I feel like I can give up Facebook too. i I just I saw no reason to stay in there and fight. so I, I feel like that, Defeat of the will is one of the things that happens, like you just said. I want to think of myself as independent-minded, of course. Like you, just don't feel human right. when you imagine that you're saying things other people have taught you to say, or even engaging in a debate. Yeah. Should bump stocks be legal or whatever? That have just pushed you so far outside the realm of common sense right, right. that you feel like you're being driven feel by like you're something. You're a useful else. idiot
2: or something. Yeah, yeah. No, I. I that is a. Uh, it's a. It's a deeply unpleasant thought to have. And and I get how it's overwhelming. I mean, I guess it's possible that Cambridge Analytica is way overinflating its own power. Yeah. It's also possible that it has a lot of power. Yeah. When you start thinking about like the basic premise of what Facebook and all these platforms set out to be and to do. Yeah. And, you know, this also applies to the Reddit piece and all this stuff. All of these platforms started around the same time yep. and all basically with the same promise, which is we're going to make the world more open and connected. That's like the phrase that Mark Zuckerberg liked yeah. to use. Yeah, And, you know, everybody was kind of a variation on that. Like there were different amounts of guardrails. There were different kinds of sort of setups and designs. But the basic premise was I bring everybody into the same global room yeah. and they all basically get along and, and enlighten each other. Yeah. That premise, I think, was deeply flawed. Mm-hmm. But when you start with that premise that Mark Zuckerberg has built his entire life and career around that openness and connection will, will save us, yeah. of course stuff like this is going to happen. Like, in a way, I don't, I, I don't downplay the Cambridge Analytica news at all. I think it's really important. But are we really shocked that one of the biggest corporations in the world whose fundamental value proposition is attracting and selling people's attention mm-hmm. can be hijacked to – take people's data and drive attention toward them like that's how it works
0: yeah 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 and
2: so if if the trend has been toward openness and connection and those open connections are used and exploited for for various purposes whether by businesses or by political advertisers or by gaming companies that want to steal your credit card information or by whatever like yeah we've put ourselves all in this room and now if somebody sneezes we're gonna catch a cold like that's how it works
0: well i um i want you to get to your the party metaphor, which mm. to me suggests that there might be a kind of broken windows solution. Yeah, um, I, I, you don't bring it up, but you hint at it in this piece about Reddit. Yeah, which is weird because
2: um, the actual broken windows, I hate, but in this in, in this metaphor, maybe. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, I think there yeah. the idea that there might be things you could do with the interface. Um, I mm-hmm. mean, one interesting. I mean, one point here, maybe the first thing that comes to mind when when people who don't hang out on reddit think about reddit is how garbled and crazy and and um and cr- like you know filled with little codes and private jokes reddit is it does not it does not look like a, a safe spot you're actually like expect it you expect you're gonna see you know weird stuff weird um,
2: stuff impenetrable what does this mean yeah. how do I access it yeah all that um, stuff
0: where Facebook I feel like lulls you into you know gives you a, a this kind of tranquility it's like a sort of despotic interface that makes you think my aunt's over there it's all fine yeah it's you like know. it's
2: like f- Forced pleasantness. It's yeah. very Disney World. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's very everything is safe. There's baby pictures. The lights are on. Everyone's cool. I mean, that's yeah. how I kind of. I was thinking through possible metaphors because there really is this fundamental question of like, what is this? Yeah, these, these are the biggest, most powerful institutions of our like entire attention information economy. Yeah, and yet, what are they?
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: um, and so. In a way that was almost like playing a game, like a, this Cartesian game with myself. Yes. Like, how simple can we make this? Yeah. And 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 it was – part of it was uh, listening to this Supreme Court oral argument in a case about a, a registered sex offender. And the question was, can this registered sex offender be prohibited from using social media? Okay. And the Supreme Court being the Supreme Court – had to address all these underlying questions. So they were like, well, what is social media? Yeah. Is it a public square? Yes. Is it an airport terminal? Right. Is it like a voting booth? Is it like this? Is it like this? Because that's like how the Supreme Court generally reasons about things that aren't in the Constitution that they have to like analogize to. It's like shadows of shadows of analogies, right? It's like yeah. thinking about how the court thinks about it and the way they think about it is is with all these you know metaphors to various things. It just seemed like when you build a social network, you're not building a... You're not it's not like an official state institution, right? You're mm-hmm. not building like a road or something that like because people always talk about the pipes of the internet. Yeah. It seemed to me more like you're just you're just inviting a bunch of people into a space.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's not like a utility because you don't have to be there. Mm-hmm. It's like supposed to be fun, it's supposed to be interesting, you're supposed to meet new people.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It only becomes a utility when 2 billion people show up mm-hmm. and then by de facto just by the f- sheer force of its size it becomes this institution mm-hmm. but at first it's literally you know the people who founded it their friends their friends friends right. and you know we've all hosted parties before the early moments of hosting a party even the decisions you make before you open the doors can be really crucial yeah right yeah how much alcohol do i have what kind of alcohol do i have do i not have alcohol what kind of music do I play, right? Mm-hmm. And and as we all know, there are trade-offs. If I play Mozart, no one will get offended, but people might be bored. Right. If I... Or Velvet
0: Underground is supposed to be the least offensive and oh. yet still cool music. Yeah, that's
2: good. <laughs> or like maybe Bob Marley. There are certain yeah. things that nobody could object to. Yeah. Velvet Underground is good. But like, you know, Velvet Underground is talking about all kinds of weird shit if yep, you actually true. listen. So... You know, so, okay, am I going to play Velvet Underground, but then do I play, like, you know, Velvet Underground with Nico is only, like, 39 minutes long, right? What do I do after that? Yeah. So there's all these decisions you have to make, and suddenly, you know, people keep showing up, things snowball, mm-hmm. you know, should I, like, I see someone, like, leaning out the window smoking a cigarette, should I, like, go back? be like a downer and tell them to stop doing that. No, I'll just let them do it because it like makes me feel cooler to have my party be a little bit wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then actually, oh, someone has asthma. So like I really shouldn't like they're going to actually. Yeah. It, so it's all these it's all these offs that you have to think about. Yeah. And and <laughs> what, what that whole free speech absolutism climate in the country allowed these companies to do was essentially throw the biggest parties that have ever been thrown in human history. Yes. And just leave. Right. So it's like you guys play whatever music you want, do whatever you want, I'll be back in 10 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they come back and they're like, hey, who trashed the place? And it's like, <laughs> you did. like, you did. not you didn't set up the conditions that allowed this to be functional.
0: Yeah, I like a lot about that, and it gives a lot of credit. I mean, it gives a lot of – it puts a lot of weight on design. It gives a lot of weight on, like, just really good sound, unbreakable code, um, some kind of automated curation. But in some ways, I'm actually – shy about metaphor when it comes to talking about Text and symbols. Mm. So I am the only person who still likes my education and PhD in post structuralism. <laughs> and, um, and I believe alone, I know I'm alone, but that the language speaks us and that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is not the host anymore of any kind of party, you're not even absent host. Entirely
2: alone. I think a lot of the far right agrees with you. <laughs>
0: oh, you're I right. rea- they, the alternative love, facts people. They love
2: post structuralism. Yes, yes,
0: yes. Um, but
2: so, tell, so well, tell me what the doubt da- so if Thank the-
0: you. I think that that's a misappropriation. <laughs> but I, and I Also, I believe I'm being purely descriptive when I say that I think that we are not good readers of text anymore. So, mm. you know, there's no reason to say that Facebook is a place. That, I mean, or you have to go one step away to say Facebook is a place. Facebook as images and symbols is seems pretty true to what it is. There's probably a metaphor mm. somewhere in saying it's whatever.
2: Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, so,
0: so that we're, we're that's
2: fascinating. So you're leaving
0: you're, it, we're reading it.
2: I got it. So and, your problem with the party analogy is that imagining us as bodies in a space is giving is giving it too much corporeality. That, yes. That it's y- actually just...
0: This is a very mental activity yeah. and it's a very focused predatorial activity of mm-hmm. reading, mm-hmm. which is not, doesn't have perception. It does, language, it, you know, It uses one part of the brain over and over again. That's interesting. Um, but we also, you know, I was... Reading this amazing MIT study that about fake news. I'm sure you saw mm-hmm. it in Science. The science, yeah, yeah, um, magazine, and they very extensive study of contested stories and whether what people and bots did with those stories. So not just ordinary facts about the world, but things that you know might or might not be true. Donald Trump, uh, you know, gave a gave a kid a a sick kid a ride on his plane or something like that. Mm-hmm. Took him to a hospital. And found that humans preferred lies to the truth, where bots had equanimity about truth and lies. And I started to think about humans liking lies better than truth, and also, in particular, very shocking, disgusting lies, preferring them to truth. And then I thought, I, I hate these things. I, I, the analysis of, of Trump Times distances me so much from other language users, you know, because you just start to think, oh, they're idiots, or like, how could people love Nazi speech or whatever? Then I thought, you know, I love disgusting novel, shocking things. That's why I watch and read a ton of fiction, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, Broadchurch is supposedly this high-minded, mm-hmm. you know, British detective show, which is about a completely revolting, not only pedophilic act, but then murder around a sexual act. So, like, what's wrong with me that I watch that? But what's right with me that I watch it with my suspension of disbelief fiction brain? I can tell Forged History from not. So, Pizzagate would be a great premise for a novel. It's just that, unfortunately, right now, and this was true in the beginning of the novel, you enter the internet and there's no fiction space for you. So you're just a bad person who likes to talk about sick, bad things and then every now and then acts on them by going into, you know, comet pizza with a gun. It's the
2: same thing with with early hip-hop as opposed to hip-hop now where it was taken too literally at first and so the West Coast-East Coast rivalry became you know, fed on itself based on actual rivalries and then people took guns (laughs) out. People
0: start dying, yes. Yeah,
2: but like now it's like nobody really thinks that Snoop Dogg is actually talking about
0: you know, this is Killing the people, the Astor Place you know. riots was started because two tenors showed down against each other. It was right. opera, taken right. seriously. So I do have some hope for us training ourselves. You know, the er, er, first no, 18th century novels passed. They were forged history. Like Maul Flanders, the prostitute, was supposedly telling her story. And Tristram Shandy, all that Tristram Shandy, stuff. Tristram Shandy, yeah. exactly. So – I do have hope that we can start to distinguish, you know, that you can tell Soap Opera Digest and the National Enquirer from the New Yorker on the newsstand, you know, when you when they meet in space. Because <laughs> determining the genre of a speech act is the first part of
2: reading. Well, and again, this this goes back to the design problem, right? Facebook has been trying to make it as hard as possible to distinguish the National Enquirer from the New Yorker because everything looks exactly the same. Literally, in the design, everything the name of every when you see an, an article posted to your newsfeed, which you will see less and less as they take articles out of newsfeed, yeah, it all – it's a tiny little line of gray text that says from Wired.com or from yeah. – so everything literally looks the same. Yeah. So – and now, you know, based on this like Campbell Brown initiative, they're trying to give people back their branding a little bit. So they're like you can have your logo maybe in some places because that's a thing that publishers need in order to make people associate the good thing they got with the good brand they got it from.
0: Yeah, yeah, But yeah, when everything
2: yeah. is thrown into this swirl of, oh, it's just, and it's like gray and tiny, the, the only act is the clicking.
0: Okay, so the the way that I, I think you and I are... metaphors or not metaphors come together is that um, this MIT study was just transformed my thinking about this because of its emphasis on physical reactions in the body of people. So um, disgust in particular, disgust, shock, and whatever reaction we have to novelty, the thrill of the new. And And you had
2: this in your trolling piece too, like like trolls are trying to get inside your brain and your body. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cortisol, spike cortisol, you know, and get you to look for enemies, hypervigilance, immune system revved up. As for the physical effect on the body, so why are companies incentivized to producing a particular kind of content? So what's the chat roulette model for me Mm -hmm. is interesting because very open mandate. All you were supposed to do was, you know, have complete random video conversations with people. The first reviewers, I think Sam Anderson reviewed it, a bunch of people reviewed it, and said, oh, how interesting, you can just strike up conversations with people. It just never, I don't think it occurred to people in the beginning, maybe there was some romance possibly in it, but that everyone was just going to have their clothes off or be even beyond like an auto loop of like someone jerking off all the time. But that happened very quickly. The point is, the more open the platform, then you get. That's why I call porn a predator plant. That it that has uh-huh. it a homogenizing effect. Uh-huh. So you think that you would see when you come back from this party, let's say, you think you'd see that you know after seven years anarchy crazy these people over here are, to, are rehearsing trotsky stalin these people over here are having like a lesbian orgy these people whatever no in fact you come back and it's all covered with swastikas like right. and and just like is that free speech no that's that has a chilling effect yeah. on free speech because the only speech that counts is that cortisol like you know yeah that language that makes you feel like you almost want to be dead and in that way it resembles more like People will smoke one cigarette, and then they'll smoke 20, and yeah. then they'll smoke thousands. Well, there's so in much in the name in of freedom, you smoke, and then you're doing nothing but smoking.
2: I think the structural advantage, again, if we want to do the room party thing, the structural advantage, literal structural advantage in that metaphor, that Reddit has is sub-rooms. Yes. So, chat roulette was just, you're dr- you're just like drawn into a portal through a wormhole, and you end up in wherever they drop you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if 9 out of 10 of those are this weird, dark you know, pornographic treadmill, you're just never going to go again because it's so weird and gross. Facebook is very, very controlled too. You're on this strapped in ride through Disney World. You don't get to choose where you're going. The algorithm chooses for you. That can be really pleasant, but some people get tired of Disney World or they see behind the curtain too much and it freaks them out. Twitter is one giant room where like Donald Trump and Kim Kardashian and like a bunch of comedians and a bunch of basketball players and
0: Lawrence Tribe and <laughs> Bill Crystal
2: are all <laughs> yeah. just shouting. And like, yes, you can choose which ones you follow, but like things can spread so easily. Now, uh, there are advantages and disadvantages to all these things. Yeah. Some people don't want to be in a room where Lawrence Tribe is shouting at them. Some people just want to see pictures of their relatives. Mm-hmm. And Facebook actually is doubling down on their promise to deliver that experience to those people. Yeah. And that's that's all good. But. What Reddit has is this unique ability to segment people into subreddits based on their niche, niche interests. Yeah. And so I think that is the thing that actually, from my reading of Reddit's history, saved it from actually being totally taken over by Nazis. I actually think it was a little bit more of the Trotskyists are in one room and the orgies in one room. Yeah. And because of the, the subreddits, Reddit has had porn on it since the beginning.
0: Yeah, yeah. But
2: porn has not taken over because they have this firewall not not an unbreachable firewall, but they have a wall between NSFW content and other content.
0: Yeah. So you, I didn't realize that um, it's uh, Huffman. Sorry, what's his first name? Steve Huffman. Oh, yeah. yeah Steve Huffman. So the, the founders of Reddit um, are UVA graduates. UVA has been sort of a light motif of Trumpcast because I'm an un- unhappy with UVA alumna and, <laughs> and, and Jamal Bowie is vi- loved UVA and went there. It's only because he was a Jefferson scholar, I think, <laughs> that he liked it so much. But... Um, so anyway, I imagine these guys coming out of that and deciding to build Reddit. They're they're sort of video gamey otaku people or whatever. They like to nerd out on everything. They
2: love Paul Graham. They love coding. I mean, they, just, right? Yeah. Okay. So
0: they really admire. So yeah, some of the great Silicon Valley hackers and coders, and they make this thing. And then what happens? Like, just talk us through how so, we got here, and also Reddit's complicity, as you see it or not see it, in I don't know what exactly to call it—the like disinformation or um, the Russians computational, stuff. Ra- yeah. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, Russian yeah. stuff. We'll call it the Russian <laughs>
2: stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, so I agree that I, I, I think it's it's worth bringing up the milieu they come out of, both UVA and just the larger cultural climate at the yeah. time. They were in the first Y Combinator class. They were very inundated with with the early Silicon Valley Reddit yeah. uh, <laughs> rhetoric. And they, both for better and for worse, I mean, they used to say, I don't think this made it into the piece, but they, they used to say, instead of talking about freedom of the press, we talk about freedom from the press, because they were of this generation yeah. of the kind of John Stewart-y, fuck CNN oh, kind right, of generation. Because right, 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 right. again, talking about things swinging from the left to the right. yeah. Fuck CNN. Used to be a lefty thing,
0: right? So that's right.
2: So you know, and still is to some extent. So like that.
0: Are you talking about the, saying the left? There was a time when the left didn't think John Brennan and the CIA were our like <laughs> gods. Yeah, it is so. <laughs> and weird. we were like FBI forever. <laughs>
2: <Yes>. It's <laughs> so weird how this stuff shifts, and that's you know that's sort of the the eternal Glenn Greenwald point. But there was a time when I think plausibly, I don't think this is just like talking points. I think they thought of themselves as primarily apolitical we are builders, we are hackers, we're going to make a cool thing. The way we're going to keep it cool and kind of punky and edgy is by not letting these big kind of corporate shills take over, right? So it's like whenever some disruptor, potential disruptor to Facebook kind of like flares up and then like dies away, it's always on the premise of, you know, LO or any of these things, it's always on the premise of like, you don't want a bunch of like brands talking to you, you don't want a bunch of managed Uh, experiences. Yeah, you want it to be authentic. So like, Authentic is a very much a double edged sword. And I think Reddit yeah. has achieved it
0: yeah, 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 <laughs> at, a,
2: at a great cost, but at a great benefit. So from the beginning, it was say whatever you want, do whatever you want. Only if we basically they had this posture of like sort of the way that uh, that a lot of these companies are with cybersecurity and, and like hacking into your phones. Yeah. The way that Apple is like, we will go to great lengths to protect the government from being able to access your phone or, yeah. or so they say this is what reddit was for speech like unless we have to take it down unless it's like child pornography right. and the fbi makes us take it down short of that we don't want to yeah. and and it's going to be a last resort yeah. and this again this did not make them unique this was this was very much twitter's talking point twitter had all these like isis beheading photos and these like yep. kidnapping photos and and they would say only as a last resort at the request of either the government or the family, or, or a combination of factors, will we consider taking it down?
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Which is the kind of opposite of the of the early YouTube approach of of just yeah. I don't like it, get it out of here.
0: Yeah, yep. Yeah. And also, you know, it, it I, we miss Steve Jobs right now, who like was just such a like closed off jerk, like our thing doesn't play with anyone. It would just be interesting to see. I mean, you know that he would like have not liked. Yeah, what you was know, his thing? The he user... would have banned any app. He would have banned that wasn't pretty enough. Right. Yeah. So he would have banned a Nazi app in a hot second. Oh, he would
2: have banned just a, a Comic Sans app because he didn't like the way it looked. <laughs> right, I mean, right, right. that right. was his style. And, you know, it's like we we kind of revere it and 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 are afraid of it in equal measure when we think of it in terms of Steve Jobs because his dictum of, you know, the consumer doesn't know what they want Right. right. is both terrifying and maybe true.
0: But it's interesting to not have that v- incredibly powerful voice. Around when all the other tech titans are, you know, go the other direction. Well, and
2: this is again, this is a little bit of a digression. But the reason that I think it's so important, people are very hung up, I think, rightly, on this ongoing question that keeps shifting: of is Facebook a publisher or a platform? Mm -hmm. And for years now, they've been asked not enough, and maybe not aggressively enough. But they were asked multiple times: Are you a media company? And they always said no. Yeah. And now they're just starting to say, Yeah, we make choices. There was just this Recode interview. With Adam Masaria and Campbell Brown, where she said, for the first time, we're starting to make choices, which sounds mm. like a kind of publisher-y move. The reason I think that's important, people bring all kinds of like business, you know, metrics to it. And yeah. will this allow publishers to make money or not make money? That's all secondary to me. What's primary yeah. is a publisher has to be able to make these choices, right? So the Steve Jobsy model of I don't like it, yeah. therefore it doesn't exist in my thing. Yeah. That's something publishers have always done. Right. There is never a question of like is the editor of Harper's Magazine gonna print something that they think is bad? No, that's right. not their job. Their yeah. job is to print stuff they think is good. Yeah. and Harper's is a good example of how you can do that at cost to your like relevancy to the public, <laughs> you know, discourse until you know <laughs> whatever.
0: Whenever Lewis Lapham, guy worked at Harper's for a while, killed a story that we had been working on forever, and went out for drinks afterward and just said. I just don't like stories about the Catholic Church. There you go. <laughs> that's but why you like, killed it. <laughs> and so that's the Steve
2: Jobsy thing, right? Yeah. And like not to pick on Harper's, everybody has a version of this. But no, like, no, no.
0: it's the Steve Jobsy thing. But all, yeah,
2: anyway, go ahead. But so it has great costs and great benefits. The great benefit is when you read a, a, a highly curated magazine. When you read Lewis Lapham era Harper's, mm-hmm. you were reading that magazine. Mm-hmm. You, it was not interchangeable. It was not yeah. a commodity. Yeah. And if you trust that editor's judgment. You want that product, like that's the that's wait, why. Even if
0: you don't trust the editor's judgment, you you know where you are. Yeah. I mean this this sort of this. I mean, it's only because I know you'll indulge me in this, but you know, reading is a lot about orientation. My son is studying for the his bar mitzvah right now, and you know. The original first reading on a scroll is finding your way on the page. Where are your eyes? The right, exactly. Pointer He's thing, got yeah. the point. He's yeah. showing me the and showing me the pointer, um, and also supplying the vowels. So like mixing yourself with the text and knowing where you are in it. And and Facebook, Twitter, are just so disorienting that the mm. act of literacy is finding your way somewhere. The, oh, see, I love Harper's that Harper's relieves. Har- Harper's is a perfect example. I mean, I I, I haven't agreed with or been particularly interested in anything I've read in Harper's in a long time, and yet I know where I am when I'm reading it. It's like this cognitive burden has been lifted that you know is constantly on you on the internet.
2: Mm-hmm. There is a there is a it's trusting someone else. To give you an experience that you didn't know you wanted. That's Steve Jobs ethos of the customer doesn't know they want a giant square thing that is going to become a computer, but we're going to give it to them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That is the, the, the mandate of a good magazine editor, and it's a curated product, and it has the temerity to, like, treat itself as this revered Art object of a thing. So, you know, then when, when you think of it in the context of art, it's not like we expect to go into the Whitney and just see whatever people are into. Like, people all voted and they wanted to see this thing. It's like, no, it's literally curated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the notion that all of our media and information and everything we consume cannot be curated by anyone because how haughty and undemocratic of us. Yeah, yeah. That's like a really tricky thing. I get it. I get where that comes from, and I get what it's reacting against. Right. But it's a pendulum swing. Like it. It, it is. A, it is in a lot of ways a very ahistorical way to think.
0: Yeah. 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 And yeah.
2: because these a lot of the people who built the the things that turned into the world's biggest information machines were steeped in this techno-libertarian, freedom from the press, kind yeah. of, you know, we're edgy and cool, kind of 2005 Silicon Valley
0: Yeah, and even thinking. beginning way before that, I mean, the, yeah. the g- great fear of censorship that was dogging people in the early yeah. part of the web. Yeah. Um, I remember John Perry Barlow, who died this year, um, saying, yeah, that on uh, on the internet, the First Amendment's just a local ordinance. Our worst fear was that people would not be able to say exactly what they thought all the time, whether that was cha- exchanging child porn or whatever, in China. Yep, um, yep. You know.
2: That's the the worst you can think of. It sort of it reminds me of that era when the problem with our politics was that the, the parties were not polarized enough.
0: Oh, <laughs> <It's> right, like, <laughs> too, 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 too much the same. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
2: So yeah. And like, look, that's a valid thing to fear. Like, yeah, censorship, whether from a government or from a big, you know, company is a very valid thing to Right. Fear. right. And so when I actually went into Reddit and talked to Huffman about how he and his team think about this stuff, he was very open about the fact that he goes often on instinct, often on, I mean, you know, they they have principles and and sort of an ethos to back it up. Mm-hmm. But he told me, you know, you were talking about UVA and Charlottesville. When Charlottesville happened, yeah. I was on a plane. I saw these images coming in and I got pissed off. Yeah. I said, that's where I'm from. That's where, I, he grew up in Virginia. Oh, he yeah. went to school in Virginia. He was like, fuck that. Get them out of here. Yeah. Nuke em.
0: Yeah, that's and right. He said, he said nuke right? Nuke yeah.
2: And I was like, Wow, this is very honest. Yeah. it's not something that any other social media CEO would ever say. Right. I mean, can you imagine Mark Zuckerberg right, saying that? Right, but and 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 I totally appreciated his honesty because, look, it's not perfect. No one suggests that making policy out of emotion is a perfect the way thing to is, do it.
0: You know, you're right. I can't imagine Mark Zuckerberg saying it because he's he has to talk in that weird corporate diplomatic way where you're like fair because it's so complicated, but. Intel, I remember I started to use the word of democratizing technology and the sort of weaponizing of the word democratizing. So, you know what I mean? Where I I think actually in the incredible um, spy miniseries, The Night Manager, Mm. I think Hugh Laurie says we're democratize it's something like, these weapons democratize destruction. and in, in other words, they, <laughs> yes, they kill right. a lot of people. Right, now we all have pocket knives. Uh, right. right. So Mark Zuckerberg, yes, has to talk in that sort of fake democratic way. But of course, he's not a head of state. So like, and he's not meant to... Defend democracy. He just wants to make advertisers feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of the
2: Michael Jordan like Republicans and Democrats both buy Nikes. So I'm gonna
0: yeah right exactly not offend anyone. Yeah, but that but Reddit doesn't have that, and Reddit really does see you know you say this would be horrible coming from a Mark Zuckerberg this thing of Newcom, but it would be great coming from a Tina Brown or an Anna Wintour. Like that's what how the like that's the brio that belongs to mm-hmm. the head of a you know publishing mm-hmm. entity mm-hmm. empire. Yep. You know,
2: and that's exactly You're what
0: To have whims and allergies and... Totally,
2: totally. Be like Steve Jobs. Right. I mean, it freaks people out to hear people who are in charge of a big platform talk that way. And I get why it freaks people out, but there are so many benefits. So, like, another thing that, we, you know, Steve Huffman and I were talking about um, is social media the tail or the dog, right? Oh, yeah. And he... My whole experience of having him talk to me like a grown-up and let me in to observe his company... Amazing. It was amazing. And, like, I said, well... Do we shape social media or does social media shape us? Yeah. And the, the correct answer, I think, is both. And he said both. I was like, okay, like, yeah, let's talk about it. Um, and he said the first thing, which is totally easy for a for a manager of a platform to say, which is people have ideas and opinions, they put them online, and the internet reflects people's thoughts. Okay, that's that's uncontroversial. Right. And then he said... The reverse can also be true. You know, things can snowball. Jokes can get out of hand. Trolls can make stuff up and then other people can believe it. Yep. Um, which is all, I think, also obviously true. But you never hear tech people say it because it's unflattering to the things they've built. Yeah. But I think the fact that he's willing to acknowledge that all that weird ugliness can happen
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that he's willing to say, I don't know how exactly we're going to rein it in, but we're going to try to rein it in. Yeah. And and knowing that there's a cost associated, knowing that there are still original free speech warrior, like true original internet types who are maybe going to never use Reddit again because Mm -hmm. they heard him say that, Mm -hmm. that's a real cost. And it's not a trivial cost.
0: Um, Thanks so much for talking on this wide ranging, great subject of our beloved and benighted internet. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And country. Andrew's recent piece for The New Yorker came out uh, last week and is really terrific. I mean, just illuminating in every way um, is about Reddit. Thanks again for being here.
2: Thank you.
1: And that's our show for today. If you want to hear more from the Cambridge Analytica Facebook beat, be sure to follow Slate's April Glazer and Will Ramis, who have been on this story all week. They also have a podcast together called If Then, which I absolutely love. They recently interviewed the head of Facebook's Newsfeed, Adam Ozzeri, on the show, and it was excellent. I can't recommend it enough. That's If Then, and you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks, as always, to Virginia Heffernan for hosting today's show, and to Andrew Morantz for making the trek over to our studio. If you like today's episode, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's super easy to do right from your phone. So take a few seconds, do that, and we'll be back later this week with more Trumpcast.